1: In a 1995 interview, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs explained how he thought about hiring employees.
2: I've built a lot of my success off finding these truly gifted people and not settling for B and C players, but really going for the A players. And I found that when you get enough A players together, when you go through the incredible work to find, you know, five of these A players, They really like working with each other. They don't want to work with B and C players. And so it becomes self-policing and they only want to hire more A players. That's what the Mac team was like. They were all A players. And um, these were extraordinarily
1: talented people. Truly gifted, extraordinarily talented, Steve Jobs only wanted to hire the very best. And why not? Don't we all generally want the most qualified person to get the job, whether it's an engineer, teacher, or doctor? Who wants the C student surgeon operating on them, right? We often call this belief meritocracy, the idea that a society's most talented people should hold the most power and earn the most money. This idea seems so natural and benign that it's probably hard for us to imagine any other way of organizing society, or that there might be some downsides. But there are downsides some pretty serious ones. The worst one is that it can kill our sense of compassion. After all, if society's winners fully deserve all of their success, then it logically follows that people who are struggling with challenges like poverty or unemployment are exclusively responsible for their failures. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas, a podcast about the ideas that shape our world. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we question whether meritocracy, a system designed to elevate the best and brightest, is really capable of generating a fair and just society. For most of history, your position in society was determined by your birth. If your father was a king, then you would become a king. If your father was a carpenter, well, you better hope you like working with wood. This system first began to change around 500 BC when the Chinese philosopher Confucius argued that ability— not lineage, should determine who governs. As a result, the Chinese imperial bureaucracy began requiring any prospective civil servants to pass rigorous written examinations. These tests often took days to complete and could make or break someone's entire life. The pass rate was tiny, sometimes as low as 2%. Still, it introduced the radical idea that education, not birth status, could determine one's place in society. In the West, It wasn't until the rise of European empires in the 17th century that meritocratic ideas began to supplant long-standing feudal practices. In fact, they were directly inspired by China. In France, the writer Voltaire praised China's bureaucratic system as morally superior to the despised French aristocracy. In India, the British Empire imitated China by hiring and promoting British East India Company employees based on competitive exams in an effort to, quote, prevent corruption and favoritism. In the United States, politicians sought from the beginning to reject any and all vestiges of the aristocracy. David Ramsey, a legislator from South Carolina, proudly declared in a 1778 speech that, quote, "...the reins of state may be held by the son of the poorest men, if possessed of abilities equal to the important station." Today, the mechanisms of meritocracy are embedded everywhere in American society, especially in a series of all-powerful acronyms. SAT, ACT, GRE, GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, and the list goes on. Nearly every professional career path in America requires submitting to standardized processes of measurement and sorting. And those who perform well are rewarded with lucrative opportunities, free to continue pursuing their dreams. For another look at meritocracy in action, here's a clip from the 2001 documentary film, Legally Blonde.
3: For my admissions essay, I'm going to tell all of you at Harvard why I'm going to make an amazing lawyer. As president of my sorority, I'm skilled at commanding the attention of a room and discussing very important issues. It has come to my attention that the maintenance staff is switching our toilet paper from Charmin to generic. All those opposed to chafing, please say aye. Aye.
2: She does have a 4.0 from CULA, and she got a 179 on her LSATs.
1: A fashion major? Well, sir, we've never had one before, and aren't we always looking for diversity? In its ideal form, meritocracy promises that every person, no matter their background, can fully flourish. But surprisingly, the inventor of the term meritocracy had a deeply pessimistic view of where this kind of system would lead.
3: So meritocracy as a term was coined by a sociologist, a British sociologist
1: named Michael Young. This is Victor Tan Chen, a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University.
3: He had a book in 1958 uh, called The Rise of the Meritocracy, and he described this kind of dystopian society where uh, meritocracy was taken as a law of the land. The book is
1: set in 2034 in Great Britain. In an effort to be more internationally competitive, the government has developed advanced IQ tests that are given early in life and fully determine your professional options. Score a high IQ at age 5, and you'll be routed towards a high-status, high-income track. Score low, and well, no matter what your dreams and ambitions are, you'll be forced into menial, low-wage work. Dedication, effort, creativity, imagination— none of these qualities matter in Young's dystopia. Only innate, quantifiable intelligence. Young's concern about meritocracy was that it ultimately replaces one elite class with another. But a meritocratic value system is even worse in his view, because at least in the old system, where status was based on birth, a person wouldn't blame herself for her lot in life.
3: Before, under the hereditary aristocracy, you could say, well, I was born into this particular situation. Uh, There's nothing to be helped in terms of where I am. Uh, it doesn't speak to me as an individual. Um, but under this new system, uh, the people that are at the at bottom should
1: be at the bottom, and that creates a sense of unworthiness. You can track this change in the way we talk about those in poverty. Before the 20th century, those at the bottom of society were often called unfortunates, a recognition that they weren't necessarily responsible for their circumstances. But now, we too often call the poor losers, a word that places full blame on an individual's actions. It's also a word that seeks to humiliate its target. This humiliation has profound psychic implications. Chen's research focuses on those who are unemployed long-term.
3: These are individuals who are at the bottom of our current order of seeing meritocracy as a foundation, uh, success as a foundation, status through uh one's working life you know work is so central to uh our lives to our sense of purpose to our sense of meaning you know what your individual achievements are and these individuals are at the bottom of that equation right they uh have lost that sense of purpose they've become uh isolated because of the shame and stigma associated with being unemployed, that you are somehow worthless, that, that they're losers within this society that really values winning at all costs. That in some ways they've let their families down, they've let their children down, because they are not able to provide and have that kind of a decent livelihood, and also a decent sense of their
1: purpose in life. Even those with jobs can struggle with some of these same feelings especially when many of the available working-class jobs don't provide much dignity or stability.
3: affects the unemployed and affects the working class more broadly when our value as human beings has been reduced to what we as an individual contribute
1: to the economy. But meritocracy doesn't just hurt the poor. It also corrodes any sense of common welfare.
2: That is what meritocracy is. It is uh, individualism.
1: You know, it's every man for himself. This is Thomas Frank, the author of What's the Matter with Kansas, and more recently, Listen Liberal.
2: There is no solidarity in a meritocracy. It's the exact opposite idea. Uh, Solidarity is we're all in this together. You know, meritocracy is your fortune is basically up to you. And if you screw up, uh, that's somehow because you are less than adequate. So it, it, what it does is it, it, it forever pushes the blame back onto the individual. I mean, and this is very easy to demonstrate. You just look at um, newspaper columnists by leading liberals and, their, and just feel their contempt and scorn for folks left behind by globalization, for example. You know, it's always, it's always their own fault because they didn't study the right thing in school or they didn't get good grades or they didn't go to college. Or maybe they did go to college, but they didn't go to a, the right college.
1: Meritocracy can make us see the economy as a giant morality play, where the rich are the righteously hardworking and the poor are the sinfully lazy. Consider Congressman Paul Ryan's comments in a 2014 interview with radio host Bill Bennett.
2: We have got this tailspin of culture in our inner cities in particular, of men not working and just generations of men not even thinking about working or learning the value and the culture of work. And so there's a real culture problem here that has to be dealt with.
1: This way of thinking leads us to accept the dramatic divide between the wealthy and poor in our society as perfectly just, which in Tom Frank's view is the whole point.
2: That's what meritocracy does. And so my objection to it is that this is a philosophy for rationalizing inequality. That's not just a glitch. That's a feature, not a bug.
1: Okay, sure, you say, maybe meritocracy does lead to unequal results. But isn't the point still that everyone has equal access to opportunity and those who are better at the work at the jobs? According to Victor Chen, not so much.
3: Uh, You know, in the real world, a meritocracy does not exist. And in the real world, uh, what ends up happening uh, is that uh, those at top uh, in our unequal society, um, you know, skew the rules of the game in their favor. Uh, And they've had more of an opportunity to do that in uh, this current time period as The kind of organizing the collective approach uh, to improving one's lot for those in the middle and the bottom have receded. And I'm thinking here, you know, of labor unions, I'm thinking of uh, religious communities, I'm thinking of uh, just voluntary associations in general, you know, created this kind of uh, support that could advocate for uh, those at the middle and bottom. And that has Disappeared for various reasons uh, in this country. Uh, and in the absence of that, you have an elite at top who can organize, who can shape the rules of the game, especially in terms of politics. And it happens more broadly as well. You know, you have professionals, doctors, and lawyers organizing in professional associations to, you know, block competition is
1: basically what it boils down to. How do professional associations shape the rules of the game in their favor? Let's look at the process of becoming a licensed lawyer. Prior to the mid-1800s, there were no required standardized exams. Instead, prospective lawyers would gain their experience and credentials through self-studying and apprenticeships. When Abraham Lincoln sought to practice law, all that was required by the state of Illinois was to, quote, "...obtain a certificate procured from the court of an Illinois county certifying to the applicant's good moral character." That was it. He just needed someone from any court in Illinois to publicly state confidence in his character. In 1885, Massachusetts became the first state to employ a written version of the bar exam. Soon, every state started to adopt stricter measures. Today, to become a lawyer is an exceptionally grueling and expensive process. First, you have to earn a bachelor's degree, which typically takes four years and has an average total cost of $200,000. Then you must take the LSAT, apply to law schools, and take three years of very competitive courses, which can cost another $150,000. Finally, you must pass the bar exams, which often take multiple days and include essays and hundreds of multiple-choice questions. You could make the argument that all of these difficult and expensive hoops to jump through come from a desire to improve quality, sift out frauds, and reduce human bias. A more cynical view is that these are deliberate choices intended to maintain lower labor supply and thus higher wages. Regardless, the result is to make it next to impossible for members of working classes and increasingly middle classes to enter the high-income professional classes. Tom Frank blames Democrats for this problem. He thinks that the Democratic Party, which has historically claimed to represent the poor and working class, has been completely co-opted by the wealthy professional classes.
2: They aren't really the party of the middle class and the working class. They represent the uh, needs and priorities of the professional class and the, the tastes and aspirations and, in fact, the entire worldview and ideology of the professional class. This they do very uh, uh, unconsciously, OK? They don't think of themselves that way. They think they, they know that they know that they win the votes of the professional class, but the rest of it they never, they never think about, they never talk about, they, they don't uh, acknowledge this.
1: They might not acknowledge it to themselves, but by advancing policies that benefit the rich at the expense of the poor, the Democratic Party is using the language of meritocracy to replicate the power of the ruling class. Consider former President Barack Obama's underwhelming response to the 2008 financial crisis, in which he declined to prosecute any of the bankers involved.
2: Obama's biographers and fans by and large do not ask that question, "Why did he why did he fail to do this? Why did he fail on this issue?" They're so determined to describe him as a hero, so that nobody ever asks the really reasonable question, why did he act the way he did towards Wall Street? But once you ask that question, it starts to become clear. Uh, The people in the Obama administration and the people on Wall Street banks are demographically identical. They they went to the same kind of schools. They got the same kind of degrees. They're the same very high-achieving professionals. And my thesis, my argument is that this is just basic class solidarity between the two groups. And you see the same basic class solidarity between the Democrats and Silicon Valley, uh, the people at the top in Silicon Valley, not say the, you know, the the, the engineers who work for Silicon Valley and getting ripped off. All, they don't care about those guys. But there's always this solidarity at the top in professionalism. It's very interesting. The top of the meritocracy always shows huge solidarity for one another and zero solidarity with people uh, lower in the hierarchy
1: than themselves. Think back to Steve Jobs' discussion of A-players only wanting to work with other A-players. The winners in our meritocracy, the high-achieving people in government, business, law, and media, all went to the same schools and broadly share the same values. They have much more loyalty to each other than to abstract ideals of social fairness. And with neither of the two major American political parties now representing the interests of the working or middle classes, we need to face the uncomfortable fact that meritocracy, a system with deep democratic intentions, may turn out to be entirely undemocratic in its results. But the breakdown of meritocracy doesn't only happen in congressional offices or corporate boardrooms.
0: There are some things you can do to get into your first choice of preschool.
1: This is an education admissions consultant on YouTube advising parents on how to get their children into exclusive preschools.
0: One thing you do is write a letter or an email or a phone call communicating to that school that this is your first choice, that you really want to be there and it's the right place for your child and your family. And in that letter, it's not a bad idea to include a photo.
1: Anxiety about private preschool admissions may seem like an absurdity, limited to a particular slice of the striving classes. But the social, financial, and genetic advantages that high-status parents pass on to their children can make it impossible for everyone in America to have access to the same opportunities.
0: You can also have friends or staff or alumni of that school write letters of recommendation to get into the school. It cannot hurt. Usually these schools make a file and they put all these things in the file. And when it comes to admissions time, they go back and they look at all of this stuff.
1: The sociologist Daniel Bell worried about this process in his 1972 essay, Meritocracy and Equality. In his view, a pure meritocracy can never last because high-status parents will naturally seek to pass on their advantages, either through wealth, influence, or by imparting habits and skills like reading and studying. Thus, after even one generation, a meritocracy starts transforming into little more than what Bell called an arbitrary genetic lottery. Our modern meritocracy is not, in fact, a system that gives everyone a fair chance to succeed, but the exact opposite. Just like the feudal system it tried to replace, it condemns those who were not born to the right family into a life of low opportunity. And the fact that cognitive elites increasingly only marry one another is only making this problem worse. Alright, so we may have to accept that a perfectly fair meritocracy is an impossibility. But is there any way to make our obviously broken system better? To reduce the cutthroat and endless competition that marks our economy? To give every American child a decent chance at prosperity and dignity? Tom Frank isn't optimistic.
2: I don't know if there is an easy answer. Um, The easy answer is to put everything that we've been saying and doing into reverse. Uh, but that's, you know, easier said than done. You can't just bring back the labor movement, you know, which, which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the labor movement or is it solidarity? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I would say that you're not going to get solidarity back until you get organized until organized labor becomes powerful again, but there's no way to just rebuild social solidarity, you know, in some magical way. You know, we don't have a world war two on the horizon or a great depression where we all come together as a, as a country. And both political parties are committed to different, sort of slightly different doctrines of meritocracy, you know? The Republicans with their Ayn Rand view, where it's like devil take the hindmost, you know, and they absolutely do not care about the poor. I mean, they want to grind, grind, grind their faces. And the Democratic Party, where it's all about where you went to school and how you did in said school.
1: Victor Chen agrees that politics alone is unlikely to fix the problem. And really, that shouldn't be too surprising to anyone in 2017. Instead, he thinks we need a more radical solution. We need to bring back a concept that was once central to American life. Grace.
3: Grace is not anything new in even American culture, right? I mean, from the earliest time of the Puritans, you know, that was a central debate. That's kind of what uh, drove them in some ways away from uh, religious communities. in Europe was a sense that uh, grace was important, that we were saved by God's grace alone, not through our good works and so on. Uh, so that has been a kind of a fundamental part of this American story.
1: In the Christian tradition, grace is the freely given unmerited love and mercy of God. It cannot be earned, but is a spontaneous gift. In a non-theological context, you might think of grace as a willingness to give without expectation of return. Chen thinks grace can help us realize that the vast inequality in our society is a choice driven by ideas, not by some impersonal scientific law.
3: Grace, in terms of economics, it's about, uh, you know, taking this view that, uh, of abundance as opposed to scarcity that drives so much of our uh, economic policy. It's about kind of opening up people to, you know, understand, uh, first of all, in America at least, you know, we are the richest country on earth, uh, the richest country in history, um, and yet we cannot provide uh, for those at the bottom who struggle, uh, whether they live in Appalachia or live in, uh, you know, uh, inner city, this attitude of abundance, this attitude of forgiveness, uh, can lead us to say it's okay to help even the undeserving. Let's provide for them. Uh, let's, uh, you know, provide a social
1: safety net. For Chen, our hyper-competitive meritocracy and the inequality it causes is largely responsible for the angry populism that has erupted in recent years. The principle of grace can help us balance the demand for growth and the call for compassion, the impulse to reward the best, and the moral imperative to care for the least. But even beyond politics and economics, grace can also help us resist some of the worst tendencies of our technocratic age.
3: And I see it as the kind of the antidote uh, uh, to this Relentless, uh, unforgiving culture of meritocracy uh, that we have, where everything we do uh, is measured uh, and evaluated. Right? I mean, from the time when we we're kids in uh, in school with standardized testing and so on, uh, to when we become, uh, you know, uh, working people uh, in these this kind of culture of perpetual uh, job reviews, we kind of live in this perpetual existence of measurement and evaluation of being judged for uh, who we are so grace would be uh, the exact opposite kind of sensibility you know at the end of our lives uh, I think we take an attitude of grace we think you know not in terms of the achievements that we've made uh, as individuals uh, or, or you know what we've acquired in terms of material things we think about you know what kind of contribution we've had You know, we think about family and friends, we think about what difference we've made in
1: the lives of other people. Maybe drawing on the idea of grace could help us focus less on status and more on service. It could turn judgment into forgiveness and competition into cooperation. Maybe through grace, we can create the just society that meritocracy promises but ultimately fails to provide. Ministry of Ideas is an initiative of the Religious Literacy Project at Harvard Divinity School. This produced by Nick Anderson, Galen Beebe, Zachary Davis, Olive Kathamasu, and Virginia Marshall. Music is by Steve LaRosa. Special thanks to Alex Kingsbury and Dante Ramos from the Boston Globe Ideas section for their ongoing support. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing us with your friends, reviewing us on iTunes, or visiting our website at ministryofideas.org and making a donation. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Today I wanna tell you about a Hub & Spoke show called Soonish. The show is hosted by a really fantastic science and technology journalist named Wade Rausch. And through narrative and interview, he reveals the opportunities and challenges of making a future that will serve the common good and not just the wealthy. One episode I highly recommend is called Future Factories, which shows that the common assumption that factories no longer need human beings is incomplete, and in fact, might be exactly the opposite. Check it out at soonishpodcast.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.